So good to be here with you this morning. We're back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. We just read it together. It's obvious when you read 1 Corinthians from the introductory chapters of 1 Corinthians that the primary cause of division in the Corinthian church is pride. They had a terrific lack of humility, and that's why Paul continually mentions the word boast. It's a popular word in 1 Corinthians that he uses. In chapter 1, he tells them, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In chapter 3, he tells them not to boast in men. And one of the primary virtues of Christianity is humility. Now, I was thinking about this, this idea of pride and boasting and that sort of thing. And if, if you think about it in a church context, in a church, pride and division rise together. Because proud people want their way. And so, therefore, somebody else is going to want their way, and it's going to be different than mine. And then that creates conflict. And so pride and division rise together. In the section of Scripture that John just read for us, Paul confronts the Corinthians about their arrogance. And what, how he does it is really interesting. He contrasts their pride and conceit with the humility of the apostles. And, and I'm, really, I'm sure that this really hit them hard because... They were boasting, if you remember in, in the first couple chapters there, they were boasting, you know, I am of Paul, and I am of Paulos, and I'm of Cephas, or Peter, or whatever, and they're my leader, and I'm going to follow them, and, and he's not like him, and so I'm not going to like you because you like him, and, and all these different things. And it's these apostles, the very people that they're, they're boasting about, Paul said they would not boast at all. When you, when you think about this church, they were richly blessed. They, they literally had apostles as their pastors. Now, I've met one apostle in my life, and she was the pastor of the Philippians 5 church down the road from my church, Eastside Baptist Church at that time. Now, if you look in your Bibles, there's only four chapters in Philippians. And if you want to know why it's called the Philippians 5 Church, I'll tell you later. But, but uh, she called herself an apostle. But these, these gentlemen literally had apostles. This church had apostles as their pastors. And, and they were richly blessed. And rather than be humbled by their blessing, they displayed pride and their, their lack of gratefulness. And so if we look at the passage, look at verse number six, he begins his warning with some words that are very hard to understand. I'm not going to take a whole lot of time showing Heather this week how much material is written on this one verse trying to figure out what this verse means. I'm going to give you the cliff notes and move on. But verse number six says this, I've applied all of these things, all of these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now, two questions arise from this verse. Number one, what is these things that he's applying to himself and Apollos? And question number two, what is written that they're not to go beyond? I'm going to summarize it very briefly by saying this, because you might be asking yourself the same question. 
Paul most likely is referring back to the analogies that he gave in chapter number three about who the apostles were. And if you remember, he likened them to farmers. He said, I plant, somebody else may water, but who gives the growth? God, they don't give the growth. And what they're saying is, yeah, we do a little part, but God is the one who, who does everything. And then he, he said that they are builders. And, and he says that they need to be careful what kind of builders they are because God is going to test their work, whether they're, they built on wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. And then in chapter number four, the first five verses, he said, look, the way that you can look at us, and we're apostles and, and so on, and and we are viewing ourselves as under rowers. Remember that word last week we talked about them? They're the very lowest of slaves. And nobody, no ship owner came up to a dock and said, hey, come here, you need to see my under rowers. Nobody paid any attention to them. And Paul said that's about as much attention you need to pay to us as you, as you pay to anybody else, Okay. And so he's really setting this up. And so he tells the Corinthian church after these three analogies that, look, um, I am applying these three analogies to myself. Do not go beyond what is written. Because when you go beyond Scripture and use human wisdom, you are, you are going to find a reason to boast. I'm not casting stones, but it, it occurred to me this week when I was thinking about this. It's going to sound like I'm casting stones. Please don't take it this way. The, Paul and um, Peter were apostles, and, and Paul said, look, don't regard us as anybody. Yeah, we were in your church and everything, but forget us and remember Jesus Christ. Now, there's, there's a church, the Roman Catholic Church, who says that their popes can be traced all the way back to Peter. How do they treat their pope? as opposed to how Paul wanted them treated. The, not, not the Pope, by the way, but the apostles, because they would say they're, they're in a line from the apostles. Just a totally different, totally different mentality. And so here Paul says, do not boast in who your leader is and say, I'm so-and-so, because that is, that is pride. So Paul's warning is a warning to all of us. He finishes the verse. Look at how he finishes this. I love this. He says that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. I, I love that analogy. That word puffed up, it means full of hot air. He's literally telling them, look, don't have an, an uh, inflated view of yourself. Don't think of yourself as some big-time person. And, and as I was reading this passage, uh, a picture came to mind. I should have thrown it up on the screen, but I'm not going to because I think everybody would understand this. I thought of the Corinthian church as the Michelin man. And Paul takes just a little pin, and he pokes the side of the Michelin man. And for the next few verses, he's gradually letting the air out of their ego and just squeezing all the air out of it as he goes along. And that's what we're going to see in this passage today, what Paul does. And he does it through a series of rhetorical questions to show them their own conceit. And he hands them this on a silver platter. I love the way Paul talks and argues with them in this passage of Scripture. And so let's just ha see how did Paul portray their pride. Look at verse number 7. He says, who sees anything different than you? Somebody who is proud is somebody who is presumptuous. 
What do I mean by that? He's calling out their presumption. That word different is, is oftentimes translated superior. And so a way that you could rewrite this verse is, who judges you superior to anyone else? Who judges you superior to anyone else? Or who makes you superior to everyone else? Depending on how you want to read it. And by the way, uh, people are, are divided how, what Paul is saying. Is Paul saying negatively, hey, who do you think you are? Who do you th- how do you think you're superior to everybody else? Or is Paul, some guys say, well, what Paul is actually saying is, yeah, you are superior, but who made you superior? I don't know which intent Paul had. It's probably positive from the things that he says. It's hard to tell. But why do you think you're better than other believers in the church is what Paul is saying. Now, Paul may very well be saying that they do have superior intellectual abilities. They do have superior social status. It's hard to tell. But all of us can identify that when somebody is blessed they begin to judge themselves by others, don't they? I mean, we see that in, in the human realm. We see that right now um, with, the, we have a little thing called the Super Bowl tonight. And everybody who is a 49ers fan is, is wearing their jersey and no Packers fans are wearing theirs, which is a good thing. So um, we don't like the Packers in this church. <laughs> I, the re- I gotta, okay, I got to stop here. The reason I'm saying that is our real good friend Sarah is here. She's from Pound, my, my church in Pound in northern Wisconsin. She's a Packers fan, so I got to bust her chops. We were having communion. I looked at her and I said, hey, did you know that Richard is a Cowboys fan? So anyway, is it okay to say that in the middle of a sermon and move on? Now, I'm reminded of this tendency that when people are particularly blessed, they begin to judge themselves um, against other people, and, and it's a factor of pride. Just this week, it's, it's a grievous way that believers treat each other believers who don't match their beliefs. Now, remember the Corinthians said, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas. Do we have anything similar to that in the Christian world? And the answer is, it's all over the place. This week, I saw for the 25 millionth time an argument on Facebook about the order of salvation. Um, and, and the result played out exactly the way it always does. The, the free will faction called the Reformed doctrine a satanically inspired doctrine. Basically boasting in their, their superior superiority. We are superior to you because your doctrine is evil. And just as predictably, the reform faction responded to the free will faction by saying, if you knew more about the Bible, you would understand that our order of salvation is correct, thus boasting in what? Their superior knowledge. I mean, it goes on all the time in, in, um, in the Christian realm. And this is no different than the Corinthian problems. And so what we find is that a proud Christian is presumptuous. Number two, a proud Christian is ungrateful. Look at the second part of verse number seven. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? What does anyone have that they did not receive? 
everything was given to us by God, wasn't it? Psalm 139. I love this verse. Listen to how the psalmist says it. Talking to God. For you form my inward parts. And then I love these words. Ready? You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Let me say it one more time. You, the God of the universe, knitted me together in my mother's womb. How intimate is that? It's such an intimate picture. The psalmist means this, that your height, your eye color, your mental abilities, your physical abilities, your personality, even your natural introverted or extroverted self, they were all given to you by God. He knitted you together. If you've become well off because God gave you the ability to see potential in a business venture, that was given to you by God. If you have a beautiful singing voice or you can play an instrument very well, yes, you practiced a lot, but that natural aptitude was given to you by God. Furthermore, God gave you your parents, didn't he? You didn't choose them. As a result of where you grew up, you have unique opportunities that other people don't have. You met people. You have a group of friends that no one else has. And the Bible doesn't stop with these sort of traits. The Bible goes on to indicate that God is the one who gives people favor, if you have favor. Think about the Joseph narrative in Genesis 37 to 50. Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers down to Egypt. He goes into Potiphar's house. What does the Bible say about him? The Bible says that God was with Joseph and caused all that he did to succeed. Then he gets thrown into prison. Guess what? The same thing is said about Joseph there. You can, you can fast forward uh, um, approximately uh, 1,200 years and go to the time of Daniel, and you've got Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, who, are, who are before the king, and, and they have that big trial of all the Jewish servants. Which ones are the best? And the Bible says that he gave them favor over all the other uh, captives that were in Babylon. And so the Bible goes on and on indicating that God raises up kings, throws kings down, raises some people up, puts other people down. He makes nations powerful and destroys others. Everything that we've been given has been given to us by God. No matter how hard we may have studied in school and worked at our business or profession, we would have nothing except that the Lord, uh, um, for what the Lord and many others by his providential hand has given us. If we have a good pastor, God gave him to us. If we have good parents, God gave them to us. If we live in a good country, God gave it to us. If we have a good mind or creative of talent. God gave that to us. We have no reason to boast either in people or possessions. You know why? Because we, because God gave it to us, that means that we are stewards of everything. Stewards. That means that they are His and He loaned it to us. And so therefore, since God loaned you everything that you have, that means you have a special responsibility to him to use those giftings to serve the church. 
And so I would encourage you, if you've been coming here for a while, get plugged in somehow. Get plugged into the church and serve the church. Serve your neighbors and, and with the gifts that God has given you. And remember this, when you do it, be thankful because literally everything you are and everything that you have and everything you will be came from God. And the only way to respond to that is with humility. There's another thing that he said, last part of verse number seven. He said uh, that, that uh, proud Christians are possessive. He says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? That They were boasting in their gifts, in other words. They were boasting in their gifts as if they were the ones that got these gifts. They went out and got them. I developed them on my own rather than humbly admitting that God had granted them. They were deceiving themselves and trying to deceive others. And the Bible says that, that this self-deception is caused by sin because sin blinds the eyes. Their sin of pride had deceived them into presuming that they had created the things that they were just stewards of. And so we, we must remember that we didn't possess these gifts. We didn't grab these gifts, but rather they were given to us by God. And so a proud Christian is somebody who is presumptuous and ungrateful and possessive. And finally, the last thing he says is that a proud Christian is spiritually complacent. Look at verse number eight. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. Would that you did reign so that we can share the rule with you. Now, I love this verse. And I'll tell you why. Because I love sarcasm. Now, what is very interesting about this verse, and, and I'm gonna, I know it's in here too, but I'm, I'm going to explain it because you, you might look at this verse very differently than the person sitting next to you. The commentators... If it, when I was reading about this verse, because this is also a very difficult verse, if they uh, understood and enjoyed sarcasm, they said that Paul is being sarcastic here. And then there was another group who said, no, he's not saying there's, that, he's not being sarcastic. He's saying that they have so much and he wishes that he could be just like them. And there's two kinds of people in this world, those who understand sarcasm and those who don't. And I think that Paul, beginning here, is, is really chastising them with sarcasm. And, and he's, saying, he's saying this. He's saying, you have deceived yourselves into thinking that you have it all together. You, they probably had money because Corinth was a wealthy city. They probably had social status. We'll see why in just a minute. As a result, they felt like they had need of nothing. And, and what were they doing? Remember what their problem is. Their problem is that they're applying human wisdom to spiritual ministry. So they're taking human, temporal, worldly metrics and applying them to spiritual ministry, and it does not work. And I'll show you how. How do churches today take human wisdom and apply it to a spiritual ministry in the church? Okay, now, and I'm going to take the context of verse number eight. You have all you want. You become rich. Without us, you become kings. What do we reign so we can share the rule with you? Well, the first way that people judge, hey, that church is being blessed by God is that they have a large crowd. Right? 
God is really blessing that church because a lot of people are coming to that church. Am I right about that? Okay. If your church is growing, then God is blessing you. You're doing something right. Second, status. If, if the who's who wants to be seen at your church, then you must have something going on. God is blessing your church. Third way is money. If the offerings are large and the church can do anything at once, then people automatically assume God is blessing you and you have it going on. And these are all things, and I know there's more, but I'll just mention these three. These are the biggies. These are all things that human wisdom uses to identify God's blessing on a church and they could be not further from the truth. I want to show you why. The church of Laodicea, and I'll just throw it up on the screen. The church of Laodicea was heard very clearly from Jesus. And this is what he said to them in Revelation 3.17. For you say that I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Does that not sound like what Paul just said about the Corinthian church? Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. The church at Laodicea used human wisdom to gauge God's blessing upon the church, and they were content, and therefore they were self-deceived. In their minds, they were rich and had need of nothing. And it's interesting uh, because this week in my, my devotional reading, I read the Beatitudes. And the, the church at Corinth, the church at Laodicea, could not be any different than the Beatitudes. These two churches had did not understand that they were missing the blessing of the Beatitudes. I'm thinking particularly of a few. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The characteristic of somebody who is growing in Christ, somebody who's humble, is somebody who thirsts. Somebody who knows they don't have it going on. They're poor in spirit. They realize how dreadful they are in the eyes of God. Their sin is. They're, they're mourning for their sin. And God said they're going to comfort you. And they're meek. They don't use status or position to get what they want. And they hunger and thirst for the righteousness that only God can give. And the Corinthian church and the Laodicean church, they were missing that tremendous blessing because Jesus said what? Blessed. Now, this is written in Greek, but in Hebrew, that the Jesus would have been speaking, that word is chesed. And if you know what that means, it's a special blessing of God. It just doesn't mean happy. It means that God is richly blessing you in every way. And when you understand how spiritually bankrupt you are without Christ, and when you understand uh, that you need to mourn over your sinfulness, and, and you understand that the more you see Christ, the more you mourn over your indwelling sin and you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it is then that you are tremendously blessed and not by riches and not by numbers and not by status. And so a big danger, and I'm just going to, can I park here for just a minute? I want to I talk about Providence Bible. A big danger that we have is judging what's going on in our church by those metrics. 
I don't know if you could tell or not, we, we added 30 seats this week to the auditorium. 30 chairs. The stage is actually smaller. Offerings are doing good. There's no division in the church that I know of other than maybe some people are rooting for the Chiefs and others for the 49ers or whatever else. But everything on the surface, everybody who, I, when people say, how's your church going? I, I don't know how to answer that question. Literally, I don't know, right? I think it's going well. I think people are growing in Christ. But we as a church, and I'm, I'm getting sidetracked here, we need to be very careful about how we're judging God's blessing. God's blessing on our church is, do you have a humble spirit? Do you mourn over your sin, dear believer? Do you mourn over divisions in the church? Do you hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God? I, I wish I could have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Please, please, not only apply it to my life um, judicially, but apply it to my life practically in my sanctification. The, if we have a congregation like that, then we have a congregation that's humble and God is blessing. And those are the metrics that we should be using, right? Well, let's just look very quickly, and we're going to run very quickly through this. What is Paul's portrait of humility? We just saw the portrait of pride. What's a portrait of humility? And this is really fascinating to me because what he does is he actually applies it to the apostles. This is the apostles' humility. Verses 9 to 13. The Corinthians thought they were rich and in need of nothing, and Paul will contrast their attitude with the attitude of the apostles as he begins to describe the state of the apostles. Now, remember, I can't, I can't say this enough. These are apostles. They're writing the New Testament. Look how he describes them. Number one, a spectacle. Look at verse number nine. For I think that Christ, God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. Now, the pattern of the Christian life is the same as Christ. Christ suffered here on earth and he was exalted in glory. And the Bible says that we should expect the same. We should expect to suffer here and be glorified in heaven. And Paul knew that he would suffer. He, he said that when he was saved, that God showed him how much he would suffer because of the gospel's sake. And that he would eventually die. And so he says here that the, the, the apostles were like men sentenced to death. But it's just not any kind of man. Uh, the, the, the word there is spectacle. Now, we, we have lost the meaning of the word spectacle. Do you know that the spectacle is actually an event in Roman times? The, the NIV, I don't know where John is, but the NIV that he read uh, today uh, kind of brings that out. Here's the spectacle. You ready? The spectacle was a very specific event. When a Roman general won a major victory, it was celebrated by what's called the triumph. And the general would enter the city with all his military officers in all his splendor and glory, leading the officer and troops through. And at the very end of the procession would be maybe the king and all the dignitaries of that city, naked and in chains, being led, that's called the spectacle, to the arena to either be killed by soldiers or by wild animals. That is the spectacle. And Paul is saying that we are like prisoners under the sentence of death. 
And so we may never be called at Providence Bible Church to die for our faith, but we are in a spiritual battle and therefore we must be willing to, to characterize ourselves as the last of all men. Number two, he uses the word fools. Look at verse number 10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. Do you hear the sarcasm there? We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. What is he saying? He's saying that in the eyes of the world, while the Corinthians were respected as being wise, the world saw Paul and the apostles as utter fools and idiots. The Corinthians had influence in society. They were strong. Paul and the apostles had no status in society. The Corinthian church was honored in society. And this is an honor-shame uh, culture. This is a huge thing. And in that very honor-shame culture, Paul was looked, and the apostles were looked at as fools having no reputation. Now let me ask you a question. Are you willing to be viewed as a fool and willing to be dishonored for the name of Jesus Christ? Because it may come to that. Let me give you a third thing. Third one is suffering. Verses 10 or 11 and 12. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. All of these things point towards suffering. And it sounds terrible and it is bad. But Paul gives a similar catalog in, in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Christ. Now let me stop there. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus Christ. And here's his conclusion. You ready? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Carrying the disrepute, willing to suffer for Jesus, doesn't, doesn't do anything but allow for the glory of Jesus to shine in our lives. One of the questions that I got this week um, as a pastor is, um, if a Christian commits suicide, what happens? The answer is, if it's a Christian, they go to heaven, okay? Some of you may debate that, but that, that's, if you're saved, you're going to heaven. But then the follow-up question to that was, well, then, if that's true, why don't we just all commit suicide and go immediately to heaven? And one of the, that's a really good logic, if you think about it, honestly. Um, but the answer to that question is this, that God, one of the answers is that God leaves us here so that when times and culture are against you, you make the glory of Jesus Christ visible. You look at the world and you show to them that your joy is not connected to your circumstances, to how society views you or anything else, but rather your joy is firmly rooted in the person of Christ as you look forward to the day of his return. And that's what we're doing. Well, let me, I'm going to finish uh, here with uh, the fourth thing. Fourth thing he says is that they are scum of the earth. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuge of all things. So if somebody looks at you and says, you're the scum of the earth, take it as a compliment. Say, yeah, that's what the, they called Paul that. So I'm really good. Okay. Um, 
Actually, the language of this verse is so fascinating. I wish I could take time to just talk about some of the interesting things about it. But I want to point out two things. He says this, and this is the ESV. He says that we have become like the scum of the world. Now, that word scum there is, is a word that means like um, dregs, you know, like coffee grounds that you're throwing away or, or that sort of thing. One, one translation says the garbage of the world. And then he uses another term in ESV. He says, we are like the refuge of all things, the refuse of all things. That word is the word scum, and it means like when you take a, a bowl and um, you're sco- scooping out and throwing into the garbage the, the, the layer of film that's on that bowl. It's, it's also like you take your sandals. They would wear sandals. It was used of them taking sandals and wiping it on a stick or something like that, getting the mud off their stick. And Paul says that literally the world views us as a scum of the earth. They were used... Uh, commonly to describe the lowest, most degraded criminals who were often, by the way, um, sacrificed in pagan ceremonies. And that is the way the first century world looked at Paul and the apostles. They were religious scum, religious dregs, no better than criminals and often treated like that. Now, here's a question. Does the world treat us like that? Um, depends on where you are. Let me tell you what I'm, this was, this fits so well, uh, with, uh, with the, the message today. Uh, last night we were watching a a television program and it, I'm not going to name the show wildly, one of the most popular TV shows in America for years and years and years. And in the show was a scenario where a teenage girl wanted to have an abortion, but her Christian, her parents were Christians. And the parents were then, um, uh, and you're used to this, they were, they were portrayed as idiots, as stupid, as backwards. We're used to Christians being portrayed that way, right? We're just backward idiots who read the writings of backward sheep herders from the first century AD, right? Except that what was shocking to me is they also portrayed them as horrible, terrible, evil people. The scum of the earth. That's the way a popular, popular, very popular American TV show portrays Christian. And so if you're a Christian and you believe that abortion is wrong, it's a killing of a life, they view you as human debris, as garbage. And that's literally what came across in that TV show. So we're there, folks. We're there. Now, here's the question. Do you love God enough that you're willing to be viewed that way? Are you willing to say, you know what? I don't care about what society thinks about me as much as I do what God thinks about me. Now, we're talking about pride and humility here. And it takes a good deal of humility to be that way, I think. The Corinthians proudly saw themselves as being on top, and the apostles humbly saw themselves as on the bottom. I want to close with this. How do we come around 
to have this kind of point of view where it doesn't matter what the judgment of society is. This is a, I'm going to give an illustration. Um, C.S. Lewis has a book called The Great Divorce, and I'm sure many of you have read it. The, the, the play, The Great Divorce, is in Washington, D.C. Um, right now, and we, we had the privilege of seeing that Friday night. And what's interesting about The Great Divorce, one of the things that C.S. Lewis wanted to do was show Christians that heaven is a greater reality than earth. And the way he did it is in the book, if you read the book, the main character, the narrator, has a dream. And in the dream, he goes to heaven. And he gets out of, and there's a beautiful pasture, green grass and all that sort of stuff. And he gets off of this bus. There's a bus that goes to heaven, by the way. (laughs) Steps off the bus, but his mindset, now get this, his mindset is still very earthly. And when he steps on the grass... The grass goes through his foot and hurts his feet. And so he looks down and the grass doesn't bend. It's sticking through his feet. Um, He sees water and he wants to, he figures out, you know, if the grass is this hard, I bet the water is very hard. And he steps on the water and the water doesn't, doesn't allow him to sink in. But here's the interesting thing. As his mindset got set more on the things of God in the C.S. Lewis book, guess what happened to the grass? The grass got soft because what he realized was the ultimate reality is heaven and earth is not the ultimate reality and things fit their place. And heaven, what C.S. Lewis was trying to say, it's a harsh place for those who do not know Christ because they will never be there. And that is, dear Christian, how we need to view things today, isn't it? It is so hard to be humble when we um, know that our humility, submitting ourselves to Christ, is going to make us look a certain way, isn't it? But I dare say that a, Christ, a church full of people who have humbled themselves unto God, number one, they're going to be truly blessed. And number two, there's going to be tremendous unity in that church. And that's my prayer for our church. Lord, I thank you so much for Scripture. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't even express what I did in my heart this week to study this. Lord, I pray that you'll work in our hearts. Um, I pray that we will resolve, Lord, that we're, we're going to please you more than anything else, that we're going to thank you for all of our blessings, that we're not going to be proud, but rather we're going to be um, humble, humbly submit to you and thank you for all the blessings that we have. And Lord, increase the unity of our church, increase the humility of the people in our church. In Christ's name, amen.